This is hell. Greetings, fellow listeners. And warm holiday greetings. I hope you had a pleasant holiday. I know I did. I went down to Champaign-Urbana right in the heart basket of this great nation and state of Illinois. My name's Dan Hill, normally the board operator. Today I'm filling in for Chuck. Chuck's doing much the same, only he went right and up instead of down, and so is visiting family in Michigan. He'll be back soon. No worries on that account. In fact, no worries whatsoever, because we count ourselves fortunate on this day to reflect upon the good times we've had at This Is Hell over the past year. It's a perfect activity for this interstitial period between Christmas and New Year's, a time of reflection, which is not to say rumination. This past week, we've been further inscribing into our year-end catalog of previous triumphs. Seb played an interview with Kate Mann about reproductive justice. Yesterday, Lindsay spun a classic jam with Dorothy Roberts concerning the unfortunate carceral dimension of Child Protective Services with particular attention to their impact on black families. And this morning, I'm blessed to share with you an interview with frequent guest, and this is Hell collaborator, Brian Meir, who communed with us in October and shared his wisdom considering the uh, recent Brazilian presidential election, which had just happened at that time. But before we get into all that, let's settle down and peep the state of this week's question from hell. And this one's mischievous. I think you'll like it. This week's question from hell, now that Chuck is away, what's the thing about him that annoys you the most? Okay, let me explain about the question from hell, in case this is your first time around. Every week we pose to our listenership an irreverent question. They in turn diligently compose flip responses, which they deliver to facebook.com slash thisishellradio or twitter.com slash thisishellradio. At the end of the week of shows, the most pithy or ingenious response is rewarded with a piece of This Is Hell merchandise of their choosing. I can personally recommend the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. Chuck gifted me this very item last week. And friends, I can tell you, it's like a host of warming angels is nestled around your head, safeguarding you against any unpleasantness that the outside world may try to direct towards you. So, if you're listening live here on Wednesday morning, I invite you to submit your response to this week's question from hell, because I'll be reading these and selecting a winner right after I play this year-end best interview with Brian Muir. Let's see here. Now, in the spirit of a substitute teacher... Wheeling in a CRT television and playing a video cassette tape of dubious educational quality, I'd like to briefly kill some time reading pages 78 and 79 of Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Cities and names, too. Gods of two species protect the city of Leandra. Both are too tiny to be seen and too numerous to be counted. 
One species stands on the doors of houses, inside next to the coat rack and the umbrella stand. In moves, they follow the families and install themselves in the new home at the consignment of the keys. The others stay in the kitchen, hiding by preference under pots or in the chimney flue or the broom closet. They belong to the house, and when the family that has lived there goes away, they remain with the new tenants. Perhaps they were already there before the house existed. Among the weeds of the vacant lot concealed in a rusty can, if the house is torn down and a huge block of fifty families is put in place, they will be found, multiplied, in the kitchens of that many apartments. To distinguish the two species, we will call the first ones Pinates, and the others Lares. Within a given house, Lares do not necessarily stay with Lares and Pinates with Pinates. They visit one another, they stroll together on the stucco cornices, on the radiator pipes. They comment on family events. Not infrequently, they quarrel. But they can also get along peacefully for years. Seeing them all in a row, you are unable to tell them apart. The Larrys have seen panates of the most varied origins and customs pass through their walls. The panates have to make place for themselves, rubbing elbows with lares of, of illustrious but decaying palaces, full of hauteur or with lares from tin shacks susceptible and distrustful. The true essence of Leandra is the subject of endless debate. The Penates believe they are the city's soul, even if they arrived last year, and they believe they take Leandra with them when they emigrate. When they emigrate. The lares consider the Penates temporary guests, importunate, intrusive. The real Leandra is theirs, which gives form to all, its, to all it contains. The Leandra that was there before all these upstarts arrived, and that will remain when all have gone away. The two species have this in common. Whatever happens in the family and in the city, they always criticize. The Panates bring out the old people, the great-grandparents, the great-aunts, the family of the past. The Lares talk, with, talk about the environment before it was ruined. But this does not mean they live only on in memories. They daydream of the careers of the children who will follow them to grow up, the Panates, or what this house in this neighborhood might become, the Lares, if it were in good hands. If you listen carefully, especially at night, you can hear them in the houses of Leandra, murmuring steadily, interrupting one another, huffing, bantering, amid ironic, stifled laughter. Okay, that was neat. That was from Italo Calvino, Calvino's Invisible Cities, and that's the kind of book where if you shuffled all the pages like a deck of playing cards, it wouldn't really matter a whole lot. I enjoyed reading it to you, and thank you for the opportunity. Let's turn now to our interview from October, where we spoke with Brian Meir about the then-recent Brazilian presidential election. You are here, and this is hell. And if this was the more corporate establishment media, whether that's from the public or private sector, and really, who can tell the difference anymore? We would likely not be having today's guest returning for the umpteenth time, and whenever we have questions about whatever is happening in Brazil, 
In today's case, the upcoming Saturday, October 30th runoff election for Brazil's presidency between former President Lula da Silva and current President Jair Bolsonaro. We always go to Brian Muir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, a Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian's latest writing includes Media Spins Lula Victory as Defeat and Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats at Brazil Wire, and his writing at the website of Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, fair.org, uh, his writing there includes PBS and BBC team up to misinform about Brazil's Bolsonaro, and Fox seeks allies across the political spectrum to shill for Bolsonaro, which means we will definitely be talking about Saturday's up, uh, this upcoming Saturday's election, but we'll also be talking media coverage of Brazil and the role played by the U.S. and Britain in, well, nearly everything that happens in Brazil. So yes, prepare yourself because the words Western imperialism will be uttered. Brian was on the show most recently back in June when I was between surgeries when we discussed his writing, including his then just posted article at uh, Brazil Wire, Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats. Uh, Brian edited the spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, which is titled The International Issue and features not only writers from around the world, but also a piece by our very own Jeff Dorchin, who delivers the moment of truth every week with the headline Schismatpolitan Awaken and a piece by Brian, No War But Class War, and writing from me, titled Is This Hell? How a Low-Budget Chicago Radio Show Became a Conduit of International Descent. You can find our last nine years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com when you search on Mir. Brian has been appearing here on This Is Hell since 1999, but we only have our interviews from, I think, about 2014 on with Brian. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Find Brazil Wire online at Brazil Wire, that's with an S, and Telesur English at TelesurEnglish.net. I this am your is line. hell. On October 2nd, Brazilians went to the polls to cast an historic vote. However, despite former President Lula da Silva receiving more than 6 million votes more than his closest competition, he did not attract more than 50% of the vote. This means Lula will no, now go to a runoff election happening this Saturday, October 30th, against the person who got the second most votes, and that would be the incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro. The election was the story of uh, two amazing comebacks, when you think about it. One for Lula, who was falsely imprisoned during the last presidential election, despite at the time being the favorite to win. And Bolsonaro, who was down by 21 points in polls as recently as June, yet lost to Lula in the first round of elections by less than five points. Aside from those two comebacks, immediately following the vote earlier this month, there was also the return of attacks on Lula in the international media and threats that the Brazilian military may intervene and undermine the vote's integrity. Here to help us figure out what the hell is happening in Brazil, Brian Mir returns to This Is Hell. Brian, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It always. I was listening to the whole show on the feed, and I wish I could have jumped in on a bunch of things you've already been saying. You know, <laughs> but it's, it's not Brazil. But like, why isn't there an anarchist review of cookbooks? 
Oh, that's what I'd like to know. <laughs> so that would be really great. I've often thought that if I was going to be interviewed online in a video feed, I would just want because everybody always has a bookshelf full of books behind them. I would just want inexplicably just have cookbooks and not not mention <laughs> one word about it at any point in time. It's just like I wanted to do the show in a bowling alley while bowling was happening behind me without ever mentioning that bowling was happening behind me. I always thought that would be great just to screw with people's heads. I should do one of my stand-ups for Telesur in a bowling alley this week. It's a great idea. Yeah, without ever mentioning the fact that you're in no, a bowling alley. I'm in Sao Paulo. You know? <laughs> exactly. <Step> <laughs> <laughs> Again, so so last time you were on the show uh, back in mid June, we were uh, talking about the military and its possible threats against the upcoming election. October second, uh, Brazilians went to the polls, and the top voting vote getting uh, presidential candidate was former uh, President uh, Lula da Silva. However, he did not attain a majority, and will face incumbent Jair Bolsonaro uh, this weekend. Bolsonaro is a former military officer and is favored by the military. What was the nature? Just so people, just get people caught up. What was the nature of the threats being made about the election? And did Brazil's military increase or decrease their threats regarding the election? Well, the threat was that they simply weren't going to accept the results of the election if Lula won. And that threat is still ongoing. And so um, for a year and a half, Bolsonaro has been claiming without providing any evidence that there's serious flaws with the country's electronic voting system, which, you know, there's never been a recorded or proven case of fraud with this electronic voting system since it was installed in the 1990s, because each ballot box is separate. They don't connect to each other. So the most that a hacker or something could do would be to like affect one box. There's no way of hacking into the entire system, but he's been lying for a year and a half. And that constitutes actually election fraud in its, in, its, in its own, you know, like saying that without giving any evidence that the elections don't work. And he's been saying that because of that, the military is going to install order if he doesn't win, because it's so obvious that he's going to win because all the polling agencies are fraudulent. They're all run by communists. And, uh, and so he created a special commission in the military, in the army, to monitor um, the, to do a kind of audit of the elections based on a really small representative sample of like 360 ballot boxes. And so they did it, but there, no complaints have come out. And then so the electoral courts ordered the military to release the results of their audit, and they're refusing to do it. They're saying they're only going to do it after the second round election, meaning they're sitting on something, and if Lula wins, they may try to claim fraud. You know, so how? Which is BS because, like, inter, inter, inside sources in the army say they didn't find any fraud. You know. <laughs> So how effective is that anti-communist religion that is, is so effective here in the United States? How effective is that in Brazil? Well, it's basically the same because during the excuse for the 1964 military coup, which was implemented with heavy support from the CIA and U.S. government, uh, the U.S. government, President Johnson even had like Navy ships off the off off the coast of Rio de Janeiro, ready to jump in if needed at the time of the coup. Um, the the excuse for that coup was the threat of communism. So we had a military dictatorship that censored everybody, controlled all of the narratives in the media, created media, created a national TV network, 
to spread its propaganda for 25 years, just daily uh, infusing Brazilian public daily with anti-communism messages. So there's this deeply installed anti-communist sentiment in anybody who's like over the age of 40, really. Uh, so even the, you see it in the U.S. too. I mean, even people who normally seem leftist or progressive or whatever, just going off the handle. If you say anything positive about, for example, the Soviet Union, you know, because we've all been brainwashed with that crap too. You know, anyone who's over a certain age in the U.S. who was a, around during the Cold War, so it is effective. You know, it does work. But with his case, he's used it so much; it's turned it almost into an absurdist kind of thing. I mean, like he calls the Economist magazine, you know, the the world bastion of economic liberalism. He calls it the e-communist. <laughs> you know, he's called. I mean, it was ridiculous when Trump called Biden a communist, but it's even more ridiculous to call the Economist communist. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier that I'm just curious about. Why aren't those who falsely claim voter fraud held accountable for the, that very voter fraud of lying about voting? Why, why, is, that, why is that never seen? Why is uh, lying about voter fraud never seen as a fraudulent act, action when it comes to elections? Actually, it is, Chuck, and they are being held accountable now. Basically, Brazil has a really interesting system a centralized system for like overseeing every step of the election process and, um, you know, penalizing people for fraud and things like that. It's called the electoral court. And it, it's something that springs into action during the election seasons, which are very short in Brazil. You know, the, the election seasons officially are six weeks long. This one's been extended to 10 weeks because of the second round. And then there's a pre-electoral season of a few months. And so the Superior Electoral Court is, is, uh, is made up of mostly of Supreme Court justices, and they have the right to investigate and penalize people for committing election fraud. And so they're treating his you know, lies about fraud as a kind of fraud. And so they are not letting him use, make these allegations in his campaign commercials. In Brazil, it's a really interesting system that limits the influence of corporate funding in that um, the federal government, all television stations in Brazil are concessions. They're officially owned by the government and they're, they're like rented. The licenses are rented by the stations. And so it's part of being a public, uh, publicly licensed, you know, um, company to, to a, a, a government concession, all of that stuff. They are required to air free campaign commercials for all the candidates, depending on how much how much each party or coalition has, how many senators and congressmen they have. And so every night at the same time, and once during around midday at the same time on every radio and TV station in the country, they run these free ads for the candidates. And so Bolsonaro has been barred from using, from making these allegations in these ads. He's been barred from making them on his social media accounts. And so what's happened is last week, all of their powers and um, regulatory, you know, ability and stuff was created basically during the newspaper and television age. And so one of the reasons Bolsonaro won in 2018 was he was able to repeatedly circumvent um, the regulations, the law, using this lag time. Like he would air all of these 
commercials and circulate all of this nonsense on social media to try and make it look like his opponent, Fernando Haddad, was a pedophile. And then the courts would say, okay, that's wrong. This is disinformation. You have 48 hours to pull it off your social media. Well, in 48 hours, everything viralizes. So last week, they reduced this amount of time, compliance time, from 48 hours to two hours. And so the New York Times wrote this article about, oh, my God, this looks like judicial overreach. It looks like a threat to free speech. Twitter and YouTube are now being ordered to pull things off the air. My God, that's censorship. I was like, no, it isn't. It's the law. You know, like you can't run a television commercial in the United States telling children that they can eat, you know, comet detergent and it'll make them happy. That's against the law. That's not a free speech issue. These are commercials. All advertising in Brazil is regulated, including political advertising. So it's, it's depressing that a, a company like the New York Times, which for six years never complained of judicial overreach of this U.S. DOJ-backed judge, Sergio Moro, as he, for example, wiretapped the standing president illegally, you know, edited the audio to make it look as bad as possible, and then released it to the media two days before her impeachment hearing. The New York Times didn't, declare, didn't complain about judicial overreach. But now this 90-year-old court system that, you know, that, ha that is a branch of the rule of law is only trying to enforce its own laws. And the U.S. is, you know, the New York Times is acting like it's this big, oh, my God. And, you know, obviously Greenwald's jumped on that bandwagon too. Oh, freedom of speech. Why can't, you know, why can't Bolsonaro uh, lie that Lula is an organized crime figure anymore <laughs> on, an, on, a on a public election ad? So you uh, right. Let's talk about Lava Jato just for a second, because, uh, you know, I always assume that people this might be the first time that they've heard about any of this stuff. So you write uh, yeah. you write the fact that Lula spent 580 days as a political prisoner, specifically to remove him from the 2018 presidential election, as demonstrated in the Vaza Jato leaks revealed by Walter Delgatti and published in The Intercept. And after proving his innocence, managed to become the first challenger in modern Brazilian history to beat an incumbent in the first round uh, should be treated as one of the greatest political comebacks of the last century. So Vazajado or car wash leaks are the leaked conversations in the Telegram app about the actions, decisions, and operations of officials conducting investigations for Operation Car Wash, Operation Lavajado, uh, that show that the ruling judge in court cases regarding Lavajado, Sergio Moro, provided insider information to prosecutors assisting the Federal Prosecutor's Office in building cases, directing the prosecution, requesting operations against relatives of witnesses and suggesting modification in the phases of the Lava Jato operation, as well as providing informal clues and resource suggestions to the prosecutor's office to convict the former Brazilian president, Lula, on corruption charges. In other words, the anti-corruption probe had become corrupt with a clear conflict of interest by the presiding judge meant to criminalize the political opposition. But in an article by Ricardo Brito and Graham Slattery at Reuters in February 2021. When Lavajado was finally abandoned, Brito and Slattery say of the leaks that had left the future of uh, car wash in doubt, even as its work remained popular among Brazilians. Was Lavajado, despite being corrupted, popular in Brazilian, uh, Brazil, at least at one time? It was popular with the right wing because it was used to jail, you know, the guy who would have easily been elected president 
Lula, right? It was a, it was a, it was what put Bolsonaro in power, and that's why the first thing Bolsonaro did after he got elected was he appointed the judge from Lava Jato, Sergio Moro, to be his uh, justice minister, in a clear conflict of interest. Remember the one the one thing you left out in that brief description of Vaza Jato leaks was that they also showed that all of this collaboration between the judge and prosecuting team was done uh, under the tutelage of the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI, a group of 18 FBI agents led by Leslie Bakshis uh, met with the Lava Jato prosecutorial team every 15 days for like five years and coached them through uh, all of these steps that they took to enable Jair Bolsonaro to get elected, you know, and to get Lula out of the elections. So, uh, and this is a matter of public record. I mean, there's been U.S. congressional inquiries about this. The DOJ pointed out that it's been writing about its role in the Lava Jato investigation, car wash investigation, on its own website since 2016. I mean, you can read them talking about it. So, anyway, but I know it's complicated. If no, if someone listening to this interview hasn't heard about Lava Jato and Operation Car Wash and stuff, this stuff can be pretty complicated to explain briefly but i think thanks for giving it a shot there yeah, well, well let's just stand it just for a moment because brito and slattery uh, also write at uh, wrote at reuters back in february of 2021 the car wash squad began its work in 2014 focusing on contracting drafted state-run oil company petrobras although its the scope quickly expanded Former presidents and uh, major companies throughout Latin America, thought for years to be untouchable, were implicated in sprawling corruption schemes uncovered by the investigators. According to its own data, keep that in mind, the Car Wash uh, Task Force was responsible for 295 arrests, 278 convictions, $4.3 billion in reals or $803 million in ill-gotten gains being returned to the Brazilian state during its roughly seven years of operation. Corruption probes into family members of right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro Bolsonaro have made some conservatives suspicious of efforts to fight corruption as well. So was Lava Jato having success at some point in fighting corruption, not only in Brazil, but elsewhere, but it was eventually corrupted? Or was it always corrupt and we should be suspicious of any claims it made of fighting corruption? Uh, It was always weaponized. It was always meant as a way to take out, to neutralize or annihilate the Brazilian left. It was very selective in the way it prosecuted, most of the corrupt businessmen that were arrested in Lava Jato were later uh, able to get massive sentence reduction and partial partial retention of illicit assets if they would read off of this script to implicate Lula and other members of the Workers' Party. And so there are cases of people being imprisoned, including Lula, based on one single coerced plea bargain testimony by a corrupt businessman who got 85% sentence reduction, millions of dollars in illicit asset retention in exchange for reading off of a script. I mean, the guy in the case of Lula, the guy changed his story three times before they let him out of jail. Um, so, you know, the, the main reason, like, yeah, corruption is a big problem, of course, But the main reason why I say it was corrupt from the beginning was that in 2015, the investigation was used to destabilize Brazil's economy during the lead up to the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, the illegal impeachment. 
And the way that it, it committed this economic sabotage was that this judge, this corrupt judge, Sergio Moro, who later served as a minister in the Bolsonaro administration, uh, he ordered paralyzation of Brazil's five largest engineering companies and entire divisions of Petrobras Petroleum Company, including its shipbuilding industry, which was destroyed. So it bankrupted Brazil's largest companies. Instead of treating them as being too big to fail, which is what the United States did with Lehman Brothers, you know, and all the other banks in the 2008 subprime mortgage scandal. All right, it's what Germany did with Siemens and Volkswagen during their corruption scandals. You know, they treated these companies as too big to fail. In other words, all right, we've discovered that there's five or six businessmen, executives in these companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people you know, who are taking bribes. Let's put them in jail and keep the company working. In Brazil, they did the opposite. Oh, we found these five people in Odebrecht Construction Company that employs almost a million people who've been taking bribes. So let's shut down the company. Let's paralyze all of their operations until the trial is finished. And so uh, basically, there was a report in BBC Brazil that showed that of the 3.4% drop in GDP growth in 2015, the year before this coup against Dilma Rousseff, 2.8% of it was directly caused by Lava Jato paralyzing all of these industries. And the end result, according to Diazzi, which is this research institute in Brazil um, financed by the labor, labor unions and stuff that's been around for almost 100 years, they estimate 4.4 million job losses were caused by Lava Jato. And, and this is 2015, this is less than a year from when it started. So I would say it's been corrupt the entire time. And I would also argue that Reuters acts in bad faith when it runs articles like this that don't mention the US Department of Justice partnership in Lava Jato. You know, partnership which the Workers' Party argues wasn't just an, as an equal partner, but as a lead partner. The Workers' Party, the Brazilian Workers' Party PT, presented this report to the European Parliament in 2020, arguing that, um, that the, the entire operation was concocted in the U.S. and that the U.S. officials coached the Brazilian officials on how to do everything, mainly because it was Sergio Moro who convinced Dilma Rousseff to legalize coerced plea bargain testimonies like a year before Lava Jato started. And that was under the tutelage. That was after all of these joint sessions and training sessions held between the DOJ and Brazilian judiciary and federal police. So Lula was up by 21 points in polls in June. Less than four months later, Lula won 48 percent against Bolsonaro's 43 percent. Much closer result than opinion polls had suggested, well, four months earlier. But Lula fell short of the more than 50% of valid votes needed to uh, prevent a runoff. So to you, what explains why Lula went from being 21 points up to winning by only five points, around five points, four months later? Was it bad polling? Was Lula losing favor with the public? Did Bolsonaro change something about his message or campaign that led to his rising popularity? What was it that caused Bolsonaro's surge prior to the October 2nd vote? 
it's simple. It's just money. The, there's a reason why an incumbent never lost a first-round presidential election in Brazil until last month, or until October 2nd, when Lula made history by doing it. Reuters estimates that uh, Bolsonaro has spent $52 billion in public funds to help his campaign. And some of the ways he did it were the following. You know, After the coup against Dilma Rousseff, they liberalized petroleum prices in Brazil and, cook and natural gas prices unnecessarily because at the time Brazil was self-sufficient in petroleum. It produced its own petroleum. It refined its own gasoline. It didn't need to base the prices on international prices at all. You know, I mean, you look at a country like Venezuela, it's a big producer. It charges like five cents a gallon for gasoline because they make it right. You don't have to link it to international prices. This caused almost daily price fluctuations. And in the last year, gasoline and cooking gas prices have gone through the roof. So what Bolsonaro did was he removed money from the cancer treatment and prevention budget in the public health system in order to cover for a massive lowering of the gasoline and, and diesel and natural gas taxes. So a month before the elections, all of a sudden, the gas prices at the pumps dropped by like 30%, 40%. And so the middle class is like super happy with that. I mean, that's just one example. But the standing president has the entire budget of the federal government behind him to do things. He also, you know, raised, he, he passed he passed a temporary constitutional amendment enabling him, no, it's an emergency order enabling him, him to subvert, to bypass the spending caps that the right wing put on health and education and things like that um, after the coup. And so you compare the amount of money he spent, not to mention all of the you know, Cambridge Analytica style micro-targeting that they're getting assistance from from uh, Steve Bannon and people like that on, on the social media and all of this money coming. They're spending basically, the, the Lula campaign before October 2nd had spent $30 million on the elections, right? <laughs> Bolsonaro had spent over $50 billion. And despite, if you do the math, that's hundreds of times more money he spent. He was unable to win the election, you know? And for the last couple of weeks, Lula's lead has been holding, you know, and I'll also point out that the polls accurately predicted Lula's vote. They just didn't predict Bolsonaro's vote very accurately. You know, so anyway, the one polling agency that that accurately predicted the result is saying that right now that Lula's about five and a half, six points in the lead. So it's really down to the wire, you know. And that's why this week is getting really crazy. That's why one of Bolsonaro's closest friends and one of his main campaign uh, organizers, former Congressman Roberto Jefferson, shot two federal police officers and threw hand grenades at them yesterday. In a, it, was, it started as a publicity stunt to discredit the election, the electoral system, but it backfired because he accidentally shot a woman police officer in the head. Oh, holy crap. So, yeah, things are getting crazy. Like, people I know are getting death-threatened right now. <laughs> wow. You know? So, so when, it, when it comes to what we were talking about the last time you were on, the military threats on the integrity of the election, you wrote a Brazil Wire back in July that a group of Democratic lawmakers moved to 
help uh, uh, Bolsonaro make uh, or help uh, you know, Bolsonaro make up his mind this week by inserting an amendment into HR 7900, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, which puts continuation of all military aid to Brazil in 2023 contingent on non-interference by the Brazilian military in this year's presidential election. Amendment 893 entitled Neutrality of Brazilian Armed Forces During Presidential Elections requires that within 30 days of the passing of the act, which still has yet to pass Congress, the U.S. It it didn't pass. They removed it. Okay. So the U.S. Secretary of State must deliver a report, this was the idea, on Brazilian Armed Forces interference in the October 2022 presidential election to consider such actions as uh, statutory uh, guardrails on U.S. security assistance. You then quote a Washington insider who prefers to remain anonymous, saying it calls for the discontinuation of security assistance, basically a way of saying you need to consider whether these actions amount to a coup, because if so, that would necessitate U.S. Uh, cutting off of U.S. assistance. So you're saying that this did not pass. Did even that threat of that possibility have any impact, and do you think it will have any it yes. have any impact so far on the election, yeah. and will it have yeah. any impact in the future? Yes, I think it did, and it will. And there's other things that a small group of Democrats are doing to try and ensure that there's no coup right now. Um, surprisingly, and I'm happy. I understand there's something, there's going to be some kind of announcement made on the 28th, you know, uh, this Friday, basically. Or no, is yeah, this this Friday. There's supposed to be a bicameral announcement about recognizing the elections. At least it's in the workings. You know, you never know with Democrats always seem to find a way to screw things up, you know. But in this case, I think it's really cool if they if they manage to do this, it's going to be pretty cool. So keep your eyes open on Congress and the Senate this Friday to see if they make any announcement about the elections down here. And that's Friday, uh, September, or October 28th. The election is happening on Saturday, October 29th. I said October 30th. No, it's Sunday the 30th. Oh, Sunday the 30th. That was my mistake. Sunday the 30th. So you write... How could you mess that up, Chuck? I know, I know. Information. It's only like this super complicated, gigantic foreign country... (laughs) <laughs> with a totally different electoral system. You should know everything. <laughs> and I should know how to read a freaking calendar. You'd think I'd realize that, oh. that Saturday was October 29th and Sunday was October 30th. So uh, you write that Brazil has two-thirds of the population of the United States. So Lula's mm-hmm. win uh, would be the equivalent of a victory by over 9 million votes in a U.S. presidential election, something which has not happened since 2008. This historic victory, which beat Lula's previous best first-round performance by 10 million votes, is even more astounding when the fact that Lula suffered character assassination in the national and international media on a nearly daily basis for nine years is taken into consideration. Did Lula face the same kind of character assassination as you describe it overseas within the local domestic media in Brazil? Was it the same thing that was the same things yeah. written about him in both places? Of course, yeah. I mean, the, all of the character assassination in the foreign media was based on lazy foreign correspondents just paraphrasing stuff they read in Brazilian newspapers. You even point out that Jacobin had written things that were opposed to Lula. Was Lula not left enough for leftist media in the United States? Jacobin wrote 38, published 38 consecutive articles, you know, accusing Lula of a variety of things that were either untrue or very lightly, you know, had some kind of light basis in reality. A lot of it having to do with calling him a neoliberal, 
<clears throat> which you know was the big naughty word in the uh, <laughs> in the oddies and whatever. You know, like most people don't know what it really means in the U.S. It seems like because they get confused by the word liberal. I'm not saying Jacobin doesn't know what it means, you know, but um, yeah. And so there was the, there was this false narrative being perpetuated that first of all, taking power in a capitalist system involves all kinds of contradictions and the workers party never had more than 25% of Congress and had to negotiate with right-wing parties in order to govern, get anything done regardless. And so of course there was some, I mean, they didn't like immediately transform Brazil to socialism or something, but they did manage to run a government farther left-wing than any U.S. government in history. So instead of like saying it's not left enough, why not get some lessons and and apply them to trying to take power in the United States instead of just sitting around complaining, uh, glorifying in your own losses all the time and complaining that people who actually do take power aren't left enough for you. I mean, one of the key tenets of neoliberalism, if you read like David Harvey's Brief History of Neoliberalism, you know that one of its key tenets is minimum wage suppression. That's why no one ever raises the minimum wage in the U.S. When Lula was president, he, he increased minimum wage above inflation every year, every year. When he took office, the minimum wage in dollar terms was like $50 a month. When he left office, it was over $300 a month. You cannot call someone a pure neoliberal if he's raising minimum wage every year, because that's one of the tenants. Wage suppression is a tenant of neoliberalism. You know, you can't you also it's hard to call someone like a pure total neoliberal if he builds 19 new free public university campuses and, you know, doubles the enrollment in the free public university system. Well, establishing quotas for the working class, which means that um, with a differential for Afro-Brazilians who make up 56% of the population, which means that now, as a result of him and Dilma Rousseff's presidency, over 50% of the students in these free public universities are Afro-Brazilian working class. You know, if you're wealthy and Afro-Brazilian, you, you do not benefit from any kind of affirmative action. That's a key difference between what they did in Brazil and what they did in the U.S., which essentially just benefited the black middle class in the U.S. You know, this kind of stuff is not not neoliberal at all. Of course, yeah, there were some there were concessions made to big business the entire time. I mean, he sacrificed a lot of things, you know, but uh, the idea that um, uh, that someone someone like uh, Lula is not left enough or something coming from the United States, I think, is a little bit you know, counterproductive, let's say. Let's just say counterproductive. Yeah, I thought you were going to say disingenuous, but I'll go with counterproductive. Yeah, well, I'll just give them, I mean, like, to its credit, Jacobin has greatly improved its coverage of Brazil since around 2018. So I can't, I don't want to be sour grapes. I mean, they're supporting Lula right now. That's what's important. You mentioned a stunning performance by housing movement leader, Guilherme Boulos, who received over 1 million votes in Sao Paulo's statewide elections, making him the most highly voted candidate in a very conservative state. You also mentioned uh, electoral victories by those who are indigenous and those who are transgender. Why now? What has changed in Brazil? Has there been 
a major societal shift when it comes to social justice, when it comes to indigenous and transgender rights? Look, I would rather not dwell on the fact that two transgendered women were elected to Congress and emphasize the fact that the number of Afro-Brazilian women in Congress increased by over 20%. There's now, in a Congress with 514 members, there's now 91 Afro-Brazilian women and the and a lot of Afro-Brazilian men as well. This is a direct result of a woman named Benedita da Silva, who's a hero in the Brazilian the Afro-Brazilian rights movement. I mean, she was friends with Nelson Mandela. She's, in, she's 80 now. She's a former kitchen maid and a member of Congress for the Workers' Party. And she spent years trying to pass legislation that required political parties to divide. There's already a law in place that said every party has to have candidates. They have to field candidates according to the demographics of Brazil. So half the candidates have to be women, half the candidates have to be Afro-Brazilian, whatever. But what had been happening is that these parties were fielding these candidates, but they were giving all of their party funds, all their election funds, to white men. And so in 2017, I think, this finally passed. She finally passed the law. And it just caused a massive increase in the number of Afro-Brazilians in Congress and in politics. And women, you know, women as well, and Afro-Brazilian women. So that was the you know, that's something that happened that's really important. And you see it's caused an entire new generation of Workers' Party people uh, finally, you know, to come up and come up the ranks. And, for example, there's there's a former teachers union leader named Carol D'Artura from Paraná State who she was uh, she was a leader of the teachers union during one of the most brutal labor strikes in the history of Brazil when the governor ordered his military police to open fire on teachers, hundreds of thousands of teachers who were picketing. There were 100,000 or something, a huge amount of teachers picketing, mostly middle-aged women, opened fire on them with rubber bullets. You know, this was a brutal strike, and she was one of the leaders of that strike. She became the first black city councilwoman in Curitiba's 360 or whatever year history. It's a city that's 20% black. It's just outrageous. You know, and then, well, a city councilor, she pushed through affirmative action for city officials in a city council that was like 75% Bolsonaro supporters, which shows she's a very good negotiator. Two years after being in city council, she became the first black woman congresswoman from the state of Paraná, and she's still in her 30s. So this is an example of the kinds of like new leaders that are coming up through the ranks because of this change in the legislation. And it's really, I think it's really positive. You know, the PT itself, the Workers' Party, increased its number of seats in Congress by uh, 22%, 21%. They now have the same number of Congress people that they did when Dilma was president, despite all of these attacks, imprisoning the, the you know, historic leaders of the party and things like that. They're back to where they were when Dilma was president. You also point out that due to structural changes in the higher education system, as you were just alluding to, uh, pushed through during the Lula and Rousseff years, which resulted in hundreds of thousands of landless rural workers movement activists, the MST activists, entrance into the free public university system. The movement was able to join with other uh, social movements like people or People's Youth Uprising and mobilize thousands of university students to canvas for MST candidates in cities across the country. So was this 
the idea? Was this Lula's and Rousseff's plan? Is, is this his education, their education policy fulfilled? Was the plan explicitly to incentivize and provide resources so students would become active and knowledgeable in politics and as they got older become politically organized as its own party? Was that the idea? I don't think they increased access to the poor to university education specifically as an electoral strategy. But I'm pretty sure they they realized, like, for example, when they extended, they started sending outreach professors from public universities to MST agrarian reform settlements. What the MST does is it it takes land that's been stolen by the big plantation owners. And if it's if it's not used in any productive way, they have a constitutional right to squat on it and start farming. And then eventually the government, they pressure the government to turn over land deeds. And and it's a kind of homesteading that's legal in Brazil, like it is, for example, in Alaska. And over the last 40 years, they've managed to get farm deeds for over a million family farmers. Right. They've always had problems accessing higher education because they're out in the middle of nowhere, basically, and also connecting with leftists in the cities to mobilize politically. And so what's happened is, as you said, like because so many of them are now going to universities in the city, the universities have become this kind of bridge between the countryside and the city, you know, as as this as Lenin might say, like the hammer and the sickle. And so for the first time ever, they managed to put six people in state and national Congress, and they're 100% on board with Lula and the Workers' Party and have, you know, always have been. So it just shows that there's some, uh, it's a broad party and has some very far left-wing people within it, including the MST, you know. You write that Lula's historic performance placed him within the within the spread of nearly all polls. Bolsonaro beat the spread by around five points. It is a ridiculous stretch of the imagination bordering on bad, bad faith, however, to treat this scenario as a defeat for the victorious candidate and his party. What do you think Lula would have to do to not only keep his momentum going so he wins the uh, election on October 30th, but also uh, moving forward as the returning president of Brazil. In office, what would Lula have to do to grow upon the Workers' Party's success? Well, first of all, he'll have to take office. First, he has to win, which, I mean, it looks like he's going to win, but I'm not going to, I'm not a, a psychic. I mean, he could still lose. Uh, Then after he wins, Bolsonaro is telling his armed followers to surround all of the voting centers, all of the polling stations in the country while the results are being tallied. So Bolsonaro is encouraging terrorism. So he he has to win and then he has to take office. Those are two different things. Like hopefully he can take office. If he does take office, he's just going to have to do what he did the first time around when there is a very antagonistic right to his taking power and the PT only had 25%, 23, 24% of Congress, he's going to have to make deals with the center right, the big center right political parties that are a legacy of the military dictatorship because they form the majority of Congress and the Senate and they tend to try and make deals with whoever's in power. Bolsonaro's block was misreported in US media Bolsonaro's allies did not take the majority of the House or Senate. You know, the majority is still these center-right parties uh, that are officially unaligned. 
And so that's what he'll have to do. Of course, it's going to be, there's a lot of work that has to be done to try and push the fascists back into, you know, back into hiding, at least get them to be more polite, to stop openly, you know, threatening people on the streets and all of that crap. I mean, I, there, there's definitely been a change, and I attribute it entirely to social media uh, companies from the United States uh, spreading chaos and uh, arguments and things like that among people. Brazil used to be one of the most polite societies on the planet in which all of the class war and class struggle was hid behind this veneer of being like friendly and polite. And since Facebook's come into the country, that's out the window now. In the, in the old days, the rich right-wing assholes would at least be polite to union workers or, or women or poor people on the street and stuff like that. Now it's just like openly aggressive all the time. And so there's going to have to be some kind of like social work to try and take care of that somehow. And you mentioned that this neo-Nazi violence is very out in the open. It's very public. How do you think a, a victory by Lula would have, how do you think the neo-Nazis will react to that? Yeah. Goose stepping around, putting on fancy clothing. No, I don't know. <laughs> probably, probably more. I'm laughing, you know, but I'm laughing not to not, uh, you know, sound depressed, but probably right. more violence. <laughs> you know, a lot more violence. I think there's going to be. I mean, Brazil's a violent place anyway, so um, there's probably going to be some acts of terrorism. You also had an article at the website of Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting at FAIR.org titled Fox Seeks Allies Across the Political Spectrum to Shill for Bolsonaro. In that article, you talk about an interview uh, by Tucker Carlson with Jair Bolsonaro, where Bolsonaro is telling Tucker Carlson that he is standing up against China, that he is very much, in your words, uh, supportive of the new Cold War against China and Russia. And you, you write, the fact of the matter is, no no matter who is elected in October, Brazil will maintain its neutral stance in this new Cold War and will not engage in sanctions against China or Russia or any other geopolitical enemy of the United States, despite what? This is despite what Tucker Carlson is telling his audience Bolsonaro is all about. Taking sides against important trade partners does not make rational economic sense to Brazil, which has worked to remain non-aligned in conflicts between world superpowers for decades. Fox Corporation certainly knows this. Therefore, fear-mongering about China to drum support for Bolsonaro can best be viewed as propaganda. And I'm certain that the Brazilian people, they are clearly aware of his relationship with China and Russia. So who is Bolsonaro playing this role of U.S. supporting anti-China head of state for? Who is his targeted audience for that message? No, he's not even doing it. That's just that's just uh, Tucker Carlson. He started off saying that kind of stuff for the first year of his presidency. He had to get rid of his foreign affairs minister for making too many racist comments of, about China. China was like, we'll just stop buying soy from you for six months if you don't shut up. No, he's not. He's not saying anything against China or, or Russia or anything right now. You know, he's, he's basically it looks like he's lost control of his own State Department. Because the State Department is acting consistently with the way it's always acted. You know, uh, it looks like he, he put in some people who he thought would fall in with a Steve Bannon approach to international affairs and stuff like that. And it just failed. Like, 
you know, it's it's useful for elites to have some kind of clown in office, obviously, these days, right? I mean, look at look at England and the US, Hungary and all these places. But when push comes to shove, they're not going to let Bolsonaro get involved in the new Cold War. Just doesn't it doesn't make sense for Brazil at all. I think you give clowns a bad name, my friend. Yeah, I know. I, it does give I, uh, my apology to all of the clones. <laughs> so you also write that. False, so you're going to get those uh, uh, emails and they all start with a horn honking. You, That's uh, the last thing I need, you know, exactly. clowns on my ass. <laughs> exactly. You write full spectrum dominance is a military term that was originally used to describe a battle in which uh, one Italian Marxist uh, philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, uh, viewed bourgeois media as fulfilling the task of maintaining capitalist hegemony the dominance of the ruling class and the ideological and cultural spheres. Under that lens of analysis, the polarizing arguments over cultural issues between pro-capitalist media corporations like Fox and Carlson's former employer, MSNBC, even as they align on economic and foreign policy, can be seen as a kind of full-spectrum dominance over American news consumers. So is the culture war, in your opinion, a purposeful distraction from debate over economic and foreign policy by elected representatives and the media alike? And if so, uh, why do we fall for that distraction? Yeah, I think that's what I, I think that's exactly what it is. And we fall for the distraction because it's emotional. It's it's emotional. Like, you know, I mean, who doesn't have like, you know, gay, uh, LGBT, trans, whatever friends who are, are, you know, being humiliated all the time, microaggression the whole time. I mean, you want to be, you want to be there for your friends and stuff. So it is like, um, but it's, I mean, it's used as a, it's manipulative and it's used as a distraction and it, it hasn't really caught in Brazil the same way. I mean, it's, it's caused, to be honest, it's caused Lula after, you know, the last 40 years, he said he supported the women's right to, to choose with abortion has forced him you know, two weeks ago to say he's against abortion personally, you know? So he's just trying, I mean, everyone knows he isn't, but that's just how, I mean, he was, he was worried that, I mean, it's just a tough, it's just a really tough election basically. You you know, so, and they're, they're using that culture war stuff the whole time, but it's not as strong here as it is in, the United States. You well. also had an article at fair.org in September, PBS and BBC team up to misinform about Brazil's Bolsonaro. In that article, you conclude the fact that U.S. and British state affiliated media outlets would promote misleading narratives less than a month before the most complicated Brazilian presidential election in modern history is another sad example of the long tradition of Western media facilitating imperialist meddling in Latin American elections. But here in the States, as you know, very few people would recognize that as imperialism. How do misleading narratives, in this case about Bolsonaro and Lula, facilitate Western imperialism? They weaken international solidarity. You know, they weaken solidarity. That's why I was down on on Jacobin for a while, you know, during the coup period, because it weakens all these American progressives and leftists got completely confused about the PT because all of these Brooklyn hipsters, you know, just say, no, you're not left. I, I pay uh, whatever 50% of my income tax goes to the industrial military complex, but you're not left wing enough for my rigorous standards. 
<laughs> All right, I got one last question for you, Brian. And as you know, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And this one's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. You write that censorship is an emotionally laden term in the United States, a country whose citizens grow up being told they live in the land of the free. It is arrogant and imperialist, however, to believe that all other countries in the world should have the same interpretation of free speech that the U.S. does. It is... It, it is true that Bolsonaro had several videos about COVID-19 pulled off the air, but it wasn't done by big tech companies, as some have said, and only happened after a lengthy congressional investigation into criminal negligence in response to the pandemic. After hearing hundreds of witnesses and looking over thousands of pages of evidence, Brazil's multipartisan Congress found that Bolsonaro had deliberately used social media to convince followers that ineffective treatments like chloroquine, worm medicine, and blowing ozone into the anus cured COVID-19 and that, therefore, it was unnecessary to follow state and municipal public health care systems, social distancing, or uh, vaccination guidelines. They concluded that he sabotaged Brazil's COVID-19 response and that this, in turn, had caused 300,000 additional deaths. They accused him of abuse of authority, a crime for which he is currently under review by the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and which he will uh, certainly be formally accused of in Brazil. Brazil as soon as he leaves office. And Brian, the moment that happens, the international media and its audience from far right to left will be told that Lula has overstepped his power by arresting the political opposition, which is what socialists all were told always do without reporting on the very long deliberations over charging Bolsonaro with abuse of power, leading to the loss of hundreds of thousands of Brazilian lives. Will continuing the pursuit of justice in the loss of hundreds of thousands of Brazilian lives unnecessarily to COVID, can, can following that investigation by the rule of law lead to Lula's downfall as the media outside and inside Brazil will package that story as one of authoritarianism and Lula silencing the political opposition? I don't think so because Lula always delegates really well. Uh, he's not gonna like personally arrest Bolsonaro He's just going to maintain all of the criminal procedures that are underway, ongoing. So it will be the federal police, maybe, that, that arrest Bolsonaro. You know, and the federal police, he's always granted a lot of autonomy to. So, I mean, the, if they want to twist it around and say his failure to pardon Bolsonaro is an example of authoritarianism, they can try. But I don't think that's what's going to, you know... If he wins this Sunday, and if they let him take power, and if he starts governing, I don't think that would be the issue that would lead to his downfall or to the first coup attempt against him. Because we know that the minute he takes office, there's going to be coup attempts in the works. Um, I think that his big worry is probably just getting impeached over anything. You know? So he's going to have to do a lot of wheeling and dealing and make a lot of compromises with the right to prevent from being impeached. You know, that's always the big thing. That's how that's how Dilma Rousseff blew it. I mean, it's not her fault, you know, but that's what happened to her. And Lou is going to have to make sure something like that doesn't happen to him. And I don't think Glenn Greenwald angrily, drunkenly tweeting out that Lou is authoritarian is going, is going to bring down the government. Do you think that, again, justice will be weaponized against Lula as it was the last time? 
yeah, it's hard to say, but I, I think that there's a lot of people just don't believe in this corruption allegations with Lula anymore because there were so many false allegations. I mean, essentially, we're talking about a guy who still lives in the Gary, Indiana of Sao Paulo, <laughs> you know, in the same apartment he's been living in for the last 40 years since before he took office. You know, he's not someone with extravagant tastes. He doesn't have a six million euro apartment in France like former President Fernando Henrique Cardoso does. He doesn't drive around, you know, in a limousine or take extravagant vacations. I mean, they tried to accuse him of owning this yacht. And uh, when they when they finally allowed the media to come in and photograph it, it was an 11 foot aluminum boat floating in a tilapia pond. <laughs> You know, they seize his vehicles. One of his vehicles was like a 1983 Ford pickup truck. <laughs> what the hell? Well, I mean, his entire bank account, they, 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 Sergio Moro announced we're freezing up to 15 million, you know, reais of his assets. What they found in his bank account is he had less money than half of what Barack Obama was charging for one public speaking engagement. <laughs> Uh, and again, uh, anybody who is a resident of Gary, Indiana, please direct your emails to Brian Muir. Well, I'm, I don't mean to say it in a bad way. <laughs> it's just like it's literally an industrial satellite city of Sao Paulo with factories. It's a factory, you know, suburb. Brian. I don't mean to say like, you know, it's the place where the Brazilian Michael Jackson was born. <laughs> I did I remember uh, back in the aughts, uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the mayor of Indiana at the time, or mayor of Gary at the time, uh, they just put in a new train stop, and the train stop had a bridge that would take you directly to where the man, uh, Gary's minor league baseball team plays, to their stadium. And he was on TV saying, what's great about this stop is you can now go see a Gary minor league baseball game without ever having to set foot in Gary. That was the mayor of Gary telling people that yeah i mean it's it's really a sign of the decadence of american capitalism that you have places like gary like my my wife who grew up in another one of these industrial suburbs next door to where lula's from uh, of sao paulo and sao paulo is so big this industrial suburb has eight hundred thousand people living in it wow i took her to visit michael jackson's birthplace in gary last year when we were in chicago you know and she was just blown away at how fucked up <laughs> Gary Indiana is like there's she said there's nothing in Brazil like this she couldn't believe it <laughs> and Brazil's a much poorer country than I mean like if you go into a poor neighborhood in Brazil you see lots of kids playing on the street you see like parents keeping an eye on other people's kids there's life there's commerce you know she was just blown away at, at and you know St. Louis Cleveland all of these places Oh, thank God you didn't mention Detroit. I really appreciate that, Brian. She want, she would love to go to Detroit. She wanted to go, but we couldn't make it. Well, next time you're in town with your wife, uh, I will take you on a tour of what is left of Detroit, of what I remember of Detroit. Brian, it's always a pleasure hearing your voice. Thank you so much. After the election, after I get back from break, uh, we'll talk again because I want to make sure that people stay up to date on what's happening within Brazil. Thank you so much. You know I truly appreciate it, and thank you for everything that you've always done for our show. I really do appreciate it. It's always a great pleasure, Chuck, and I'm glad you're doing okay. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, 
and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Boy, that was a good interview. Brian Muir was handing, handing out insights like they were penny candy. Did he say that a Brazilian congressperson shot a lady cop in the head? Go figure. Lula did end up winning, by the way, so that's good. I'm grateful to have played a small part in disseminating that information. I'm Dan Hill, filling in for Chuck Meritz during This Is Hell's year-end wrap-up. Of the best interviews of 2022, let's turn now to the task at hand, which is to provide some sort of closure, you understand, some sort of catharsis, culmination to this week's Question from Hell contest. Remember, this week's Question from Hell is, now that Chuck's away and the mice are playing, what is the thing about him that annoys you the most? Our own Jeff Dorchin replies, the way he pronounces the noun merchandise with a soft S sound, that always seems to me to be reserved for the gerund pronunciation, merchandising. I feel the stuff you sell is merchandise. I hope I got that right. It's not much, but uh, it's what annoys me the most. Oh, also his voice, too beautiful and mellow. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff's complained about that before, but I don't know if Chuck is just trying to get his goat. He's remained recalcitrant. He says merchandise. Mark S. says that he did not take over for Art Bell, coast to coast. Art Bell was great, remember that? You can catch him late at night in conspiracy theories. Uh, Chuck would be awesome at that. I don't know if that's a reference to anything that might have actually happened, but an alternate history where uh, Chuck was doing coast to coast. Mwah, I'd love that. Bradley R. answers that he lives too far away from me. I want to go to a meet and greet and a drink and think and pet Mel the cat. Mel the cat's good to pet. He's dick. Um, that does it for Facebook answers. Let's see what's cooking over Twitter way. This week's question is, what annoys you about Chuck? Uh, Agent Sideways, brown noses, what do you mean? He's perfect. Lawrence C. answers, the way he bites down trees and makes dams when there is no water. Like a woodchuck. Kevin O. Uh, says, Chuck's animal magnetism and swarthy charm always distracts from my intellectual superiority. So annoying. M50 answers nomically his absence. And QFH veteran, hypocrite reader, replies, the rapscallion once trounced me in a game of whist. It's fun to say whist. And finally, rock taster replies, he's so upbeat about hell. That was a healthy host of replies. Thanks very much to all who played our little game. Whereas so many of the replies did delight me, I think I've got to give it up to Mark S., who said that Chuck should have filled in for Art Bell coast to coast. It made me think about Art Bell, and I didn't mind that at all. Congratulations, Mark S. Reach out to us via Facebook or via uh, email at thisishellradio at gmail.com and claim whatever prize you'd like from our store. If you didn't win or never played at all, please feel free to visit our store and pay full freight for your own prize. Just head on over to thisishell.com and click on store or whatever seems to make sense. That's what brings us to the end of our show. I, I hope you had a good time. I'm not totally sure what we're doing next week, uh, but I do know that we're going to do it together, and that's enough for me. 
So until then. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.